today, we're starting a new series um, on the book of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible, if you could turn to, in the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. If um, We're going to start just at the beginning of Ephesians, then we're going to end up in Acts chapter 19. So we're going to have a little start there, and then we're going to flip over uh, to Acts 19. What we're going to try and do is I want to work my way through the entire book. That may take a little while. <laughs> So I'm kind of planning out this term, next term, and the term after. But we'll get through, hopefully, the entire uh, book of Ephesians. And if you're not familiar with it, um, Ephesians uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul um, to a church in the city of Ephesus uh, back um, several thousand years ago. And uh, Paul was uh, a, a very significant man in, uh, in the Christian faith. He contributed about 30% of the New Testament in the form of letters to churches and individual Christians throughout um, sort of the Roman Empire as it was then. But originally, he wasn't actually a, a, Christian, a Christian leader. He was um, a, a Pharisee and a hater of Jesus and a hater of Christians. He would persecute them. He would seek to imprison them and kill them and would condone the murder of them. Um, very similar to some of the things we've just been praying about. But then we found in his story in Acts chapter 9, we read, he meets the risen Lord Jesus and after that, um, that meeting he is transformed from a hater of Jesus and a persecutor of Christians to their, probably their, one of their most vocal advocates. He became an e leader in the early church, a church planter. He, he planted many churches all over Asia Minor, Greece, the area we know today and was uh, contributed much to um, the New Testament, a real giant of the Christian faith. And he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus Towards the end of his life, around AD 62, um, we read about in Acts chapter 28, he's in prison in Rome, and uh, it was believed it was written then, written to some of the churches he'd planted, he'd been involved in, he looked after. And uh, the, 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 particularly the one in Ephesus, it was a church he was particularly connected to. He had a, a real link with this church. Um, and it was likely this letter was written to them, but it was also written in a way that's almost like it was a circular letter, that it could be read by other churches, which kind of um, accounts for the fact there's very little in kind of personal greetings there. There's a lot of Paul letters you find at the end, there's personal greetings to individuals. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so in these individual churches. Ephesians was a bit more of a circular letter, so not quite so personal, but it deals with some really big themes I want to ground us in as a church as we begin this journey. Now, the city of Ephesus... Um, doesn't actually exist today, it's just ruins. Um, but it was at the time, it was a key city in the Roman Empire. It was one of the, the major cities. It was located on the east coast of Turkey, just south of um, the city Izmir that is there today. It's just south of, the, south of that. It was a port city. It had good roads, good trade routes, good communication. It was a centre population, somewhere around a quarter of a million uh, individuals. And it was also one of the leading spiritual centres of the empire. The Roman Empire, it was one of the places where um, if you wanted to learn things about the magic, magic and the like, you would go to Ephesus. Um, it was, if you wanted to learn about magic spells or charms or anything like that, the people of Ephesus believed very strongly in kind of unseen powers, dark forces in the world, spiritual realms, those things beyond what you could see. Um, they believed very much in their activity and uh, their activity in the world. And so it was a leading spiritual center. It was uh, a place that was very, very spiritual. You probably wouldn't have found many atheists there. 
but you would have found a whole lot of people who were very spiritual and believed in all sorts of different things. There were many, many gods and goddesses worshipped in the city, um, many temples. There was a temple even dedicated to Julius Caesar, the man, but there were many dedicated to gods and goddesses all over. And the most popular, the most kind of well-known was the, the, um, the goddess Artemis, or Diana, she's also sometimes known as. And she was the dominant kind of figure in the city, in the sort of spiritual life. She was considered the protector of the city, the bringer of fertility. She was often represented as this female with many breasts uh, to bring out this fertility. And the, the major building in the city was her temple, the Temple of Artemis, which is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you read through them, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus is one of those seven. So it was this massive temple. It took about 120 years to build the temple but it kind of dominated the city. It acted uh, like a bank where people could deposit money, it owned land, it controlled a lot of the politics of the city. It was one of the kind of the groups you had to carry favor with if you wanted to get anywhere, be involved uh, with the Temple of Diana. There was a large festival held every year in her honor in the city. Um, and so it was, uh, it was kind of, she dominated in, in that sense. And the Apostle Paul went to the city of Ephesus, and he actually spent three years there, which may not seem much, but it's twice as long as he spent everywhere else. And we can think of the Apostle Paul going around, and he planted churches in all sorts of areas. You read Acts, he went to place after place, preaching, people got saved, established a church, he moved on. But he was in Ephesus twice as long as anywhere else, three years. And the reason was because Ephesus was a strategic location. You reach there, and then people who came to Ephesus for trade and the like, the festivals, uh, to worship at the temples, were then returned to outlying villages and towns. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of traffic through. So the fact that he was there, and he proclaimed the gospel in Ephesus... It was actually said in Acts uh, 19 that the gospel was then almost known throughout the entire region, which in one sense doesn't make sense. If you preach in one place, how could it be known throughout the entire region? It was because there were people coming in and out, and they heard Paul preaching, and then they went back to their places. So through it, he affected a whole uh, geographical area through his ministry in this one city of Ephesus. So it was a very important place. And actually, that's not too dissimilar from where we find ourselves now. Uh, we are in the city of Birmingham. It's the second largest city of um, this nation. Uh, it, is a, um, it is a hub for the whole kind of Midlands conurbation. Birmingham in itself, about a million people, but when you add in the West Midlands conurbation, which kind of spreads in all directions, you get upwards of almost three and a half million people. Many come commute in, um, and they're all sort of interconnected. So we live in a place similar in terms of its strategic influence to a wider area. Um, and actually, we also um, bear um, similarities in terms of actually what you look at the spiritual side of the city. Many, many religions are represented here. You will find temples, you know, Buddhist, Hindu, Sikh temples. There are uh, Muslim mosques in the city. There are Christian churches, Protestant and Catholic even cathedrals there. I mean, last year we had um, the head of the Catholic faith came to Birmingham. Bit of a fuss. Um, uh, the Pope visited and actually not too far from here, he, was when he, went, when his, he went and had his um, meeting with all the cardinals down at New Oscott College. It's only a, a couple of miles from where we are right now. And so Birmingham itself the hair, has a, a great hodgepodge of religions here in the city. As well as that, we have um, a lot of kind of just spirituality, Eastern mysticism, New Age spirituality, you know, psychics, mediums. I don't know if anyone noticed last week there was a sign at the pub over the road, Psychic Fair, 
was meeting in the pub. I don't know if the sign's still up, but it, as I pulled in, I just kind of thought, oh, we're, we're across the road, you know, and they're having a psychic fair there. So um, Birmingham as itself represents so many uh, forms of spirituality um, here among us. As well as that, we also have lots of alternative forms of worship, if you will, where people go and sacrifice their time, their energy, and money. We have, in the centre of town, we have the Bullring Shopping Centre, which is a massive multi-million dollar house of worship where people go and worship the God of consumerism, materialism, and I read in the paper the other day that they're, they're, they're adding bits, aren't they? They're redeveloping New Street and they're building a massive shrine on the top of New Street Station called John Lewis that is going to be, I think it's a, the biggest outside London, and I saw the play. It looks incredible, massive round cylindrical building, glass, it looks wonderful, but it will become another you know, shrine, if you will, in that area to redevelop really uh, the city centre. We have top flight sports teams here, uh, football, cricket particularly, represented in the city. We have a thriving nightlife where people go and worship, you know, hedonism, sex, all those kind of things in the city. We have concert halls that are packed out um, with bands and, and, and the like. We even have the NEC, uh, the National Exhibition Centre, which is regularly transformed into shrines for whatever you want. You know, they have car shows there, clothes shows there, extreme sports. The X Factor was there doing auditions. Um, I know because we had a, a friend who was there, and Mel and Levi went down to see them. Um, and so that was there, and Mel comes back all excited of who she's seen. I kind of glazed over me a bit. But we, we have all that in this city um, in terms of or places to worship. And I don't know about you, but when I've met people in the city and talked to them, uh, I haven't met an out-and-out atheist yet. I've met many people who maybe say they're you know, different religions, or maybe they're no religion, but they have a sense of there's something more. They're, they're, yeah, there's something out there. There's a power, there are forces, there are, there are spiritual people, but actually there are not, not many out-and-out atheists yet, which actually kind of says something about us as a culture, that there is a spiritualism out there. People are open to it. Sometimes if you just land the name of Jesus on them, they'll say, no, no, it's not that, but they're happy to talk about other things. We've even had friends um, who kind of just say, oh, yeah, we visited psychics and mediums. You know, uh, Mel was talking about a mum friend who over the unborn child, they went and got a reading to say what the child would be like. And you think, and she said it as if, oh yeah, and then I went shopping. You know, it's kind of all very, very normal. So we live in a place where spirituality is rife. If we look in a wider context of the media that we are assaulted with every day, um, the spirituality and the supernatural is absolutely rife in it, if you look. The most uh, successful film franchise in history is now Harry Potter, five point, five and a half billion it has rating. I think that's just the films. So I imagine books and other stuff is even more. But that's very much uh, supernatural, kind of spiritual, magical. And that's one of the most popular. And behind it, you, you know, before that, it was a Star Wars with all the Force. And they've got Twilight as well. Even if you look at the TV, there are so many popular TV programs that deal with these issues. Vampires and werewolves and ghosts and the supernatural and talking to the dead. They're all there. And they're not new. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, you had the X-Files and Buffy and all that kind of stuff. So it's all there in culture, even in computer games. The most popular online computer game in the world is World of Warcraft. 30 million people play that on a regular basis, set in a fancy world, magical kind of strange creatures, um, orcs and goblins and wizards and all sorts of things like that. Um, so it's all out there. And so we live in a place that is just as kind of rife 
on that area as the place Paul was in preaching and, and now writing to in the book of Ephesians. And I wanted to draw the similarities that actually sometimes we can read these and we might think as Christians, yes, it's the word of God and yes, it does apply, but sometimes we kind of struggle with you know, actually how do we bridge the gap from 2,000 years to 2011 how do we bridge that gap? But actually what Paul was writing into was very similar to our situation right now in kind of essence of what it is. And uh, so as we started this book, I want us to kind of keep in the back of our mind, actually what Paul's writing into is what we're dealing with right now in our workplaces, in our social lives, in the friends we meet, all very current and very up to date. And the problem that Paul found himself facing off against in Ephesus was the, uh, the problem of idolatry, which was a worship, a worship of something that isn't God, isn't the one true God of the Bible, isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the same for us today. We meet people and their, one of their problems is idolatry. What do you worship? What's number one in your life? And as, as uh, humans, we were built to be in relationship with God. We were made in the image of God. We're relational beings. And our primary relationship is with our maker, our designer and our creator, God. And we are designed to build, be in a relationship with him and worship him and give him the highest place in our life because he is worthy of that because he made us and he is infinitely uh, beautiful and amazing. So he is the only one we should be worshiping because he's the only one worthy of it. Anything else is just substandard. And the problem is that we face now, and Paul met as he talked to the Ephesian uh, Christians back then, is people put other things in the place of God. They took good things and they made them God things. And, and we do that now. We take work, which is a good thing. It's an honorable thing. It's a dignified thing. It's what God created us to do. One of the things he said to Adam, work the fields. But we make it a God that we sacrifice to and we worship and we devote our time to and we forsake others for that. We do it with um, our families. We do it with sex. We do it with the material possessions. We do it with uh, you know, sporting teams we may follow or things, you know, hobbies that we devote ourselves to and we make them God, um, we make them God things in our life. And if you ever want to do a, a sobering exercise, it's very easy to think, where are your tendencies to make good things God things? And if you ever want to do it, it's quite, it's quite fun um, in a kind of, yeah, sort of roundabout kind of convicting way. But actually, just look at your diary and look at your bank account and find out what you spend most of your time on and most of your money on. And that's actually, that can lead you to, to actually, what am I actually giving myself to? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy clothes and food and have a house and a car yet. Okay, it's when you find a disproportional, I'm devoting too much of my time and my energy and my money to something, you start to step back and think, am I making something good into a God thing? Um, and what Paul did as he, as he came to um, Ephesus and as he wrote this letter back to the church in Ephesus, he wanted to remind them of that and actually, okay, what is your number one? What is your number one? And if we look at the beginning of the book, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. So that's Paul identifying himself to the saints who are in Ephesus, the church he is writing to, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as soon as he starts the letter, he draws it all back to God. He's an apostle by the will of God. He, uh, the saints who are in Ephesus, they're faithful in Christ. That's about Jesus. And then he brings it to the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He points everything back to God. And he's saying it's all about him. That's what it's about. There are other things competing in the world, in the city that you live in. There'll be things coming at you. All these temples and spirituality and religion and places you can worship and all that that means. 
They're coming at you, but actually, fundamentally, it's all about Jesus and it's all about going back to him. And if you look at the book of Ephesians as a whole, the letter, it can be neatly split in half. Uh, one, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are kind of a half, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are sort of the second half of the book. And basically, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all dealing with um, how you think and how you act and theology, and it's all bringing you back to Jesus and his plan and his purpose. So the first half is all kind of Jesus, what he's about, his plans, his purpose, where you stand in relation to that and what that means for you. And he's all pointing it back to him. And then the back end of the book is all the practical stuff about do this, don't do this, that then flows out of that. So his, his guns are trained, if you will, to attack the, the idolatry that's coming. What's, what's number one in your mind? And he goes at the beginning of the book to attack it and make sure, is Jesus number one? Is he number one? And he just, that's why it's three chapters of it before we get onto it. And I don't know about you, I have a tendency towards legalism and I want someone to tell me what to do. You know, what do you do? What, what to do? How can I be a good Christian? How can I please God? And actually, Paul leaves that thing. And first, you've got to understand. You've got to have faith in Christ. You've got to see who he is. See his sovereign plan. See how you fit into it before you start trying to act out of it. And that's what he does in the book of Ephesians. And that's what we're going to be studying. So the first half will all be about how we think and then the second half will be all about how we act out of that. And that's what we're going to be looking at at the time. But before we get into that, let's go to Acts 19. Acts chapter 19. What I want to just look at is a little bit, um, if you read the, um, Acts chapter 19, it's basically Paul in Ephesus. And what I want to do is kind of just go through it um, and just look at three things about kind of how Paul went about establishing, this, establishing the church in Ephesus, kind of how it began uh, what went on, and then sort of some of the results of the things he did, um, and, and just to kind of help apply that to us, and then we'll get into the book proper next week. Three things to look at. First one is um, the church in Ephesus was birthed through passionate preaching in the, of God's word and the power of the Spirit. The second one was a de- demonstration of the supernatural that resulted in repentance, and the final thing was the result of the presence of the church was the entire city was affected entire city felt the fact that the church was there. So if we just read, I'm going to read the first little bit of Acts chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 1. It says, And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard of there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, Paul comes to Corinth, and one of the first things he does, he finds some believers... He asks them a couple of questions and then he preaches to them. He proclaims the word of God because their faith, they obviously didn't have it all. They didn't understand some of the stuff. So first thing he does is he preaches to them. He preaches to them and he proclaims the word of God. This is what you should believe. This is what it's about. 
They respond uh, to that in faith. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a manifestation in tongues and prophecy. They are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is preaching the Lord Jesus to them. He's preaching that number one. What is your number one? He proclaims that. Once he's done that, and he's kind of got the believers all on the same page, he then goes into the synagogue to the Jews there, which he has most in common with being a Jew himself, and starts proclaiming the message of Jesus from the Old Testament. He was the promised Messiah. He was the one to come. He's the one that the, the scriptures are talking about, and he proclaims that in there for three months. They become, some of them become hard-hearted and stubborn and they reject the message. So he leaves, hires a lecture hall. Believe, I think they, he hired it kind of in the middle of the day when people kind of were on siesta, when it was very hot. There's some hours in the middle of the day where people usually had a nap um, and then continued working when it had cooled down. But he hired it in that point and he spent two years preaching every day to whoever would come and lecturing in the hall. And it says there that actually the message went throughout all of Asia because of those coming into the city and they may have heard about him and heard the message and then gone on their way if they're on a trade um, kind of mission or something. And so he proclaimed the word of God. That was one of his primary things. I'm going to proclaim uh, the word of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to proclaim him, you know, died, crucified, uh, ascended, returning. And um, that was it. And, but he also preached in the power of the Spirit. And he, was, he, he wasn't going to kind of leave that out. Sometimes we can falsely divide them. It's, there's the Word and there's the Spirit and there's the Bible and there's the Holy Spirit. And we kind of push them apart. And Paul brought them very much together, even in uh, preaching, uh, meeting these um, kind of believers. Well, the first question he asked them, I don't know if you've ever actually asked that when you meet a new believer. Have you received the Holy Spirit? That's not usually how we begin. Hi, how are you? Which church do you go to? I don't know, you know, where does this church fit? Is it in a denomination? You know, all these kind of things. Paul, hi, you received the Holy Spirit? So he brings that right in. Their answer was no. So I, I'm fairly sure what I knew his first sermon will be. Um, all about the Holy Spirit. He brings it in and then he prays from there, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is an experiential thing. That's something they knew about. I bet after he had preached and prayed for them and, and they had been filled with the Spirit and started speaking in tongues and prophesying, if he said to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? I think they're in a position to say yes and know why, because they've been impacted and touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like that. When you've been touched by the Spirit, you know it. You know it. It manifests somehow. And um, it results in these manifestations. So the first thing he does, he comes and preaches the word and, he, and he, he expects the power of the Spirit to work. He prays for people to be filled. They manifest it. And that's kind of how the church really begins in the power of the Spirit and the preaching of God's word. Then it moves on. If we carry on the story, this story is a little strange. I will admit that. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. It's in the Bible, so we have to deal with it. And the second thing is he demonstrates a supernatural that results in um, repentance. Uh, it says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Now, just to note there, for me, a miracle is extraordinary anyway. I mean, if miracles happen, it's pretty amazing. But, the, but God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. I mean, that is just stunning. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Um, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both the Jews and the Greeks, and fear uh, fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Now, the residents of Ephesus would have been familiar with the kind of the supernatural, the unseen world, powers beyond the kind of the mundane that we, um, we could see. So that would not have been um, abnormal for them. There would have been magicians and people who made spells and charms and all those kind of things in the city. And into it comes Paul, preaching the word of God, um, working in the power of the Spirit. And there are mighty miracles done by his hands, kind of extraordinary miracles. Uh, clearly, they would have been miracles of healing and um, uh, kind of exorcism, releasing people from demonic influence. They're, they're mentioned there. There may have been others. We don't know. And people were healed. And there was such power on him that it says that the aprons and handkerchiefs that had touched his skin. Now, the commentators think that Paul was in the city. He would probably have been tent-making. That was his kind of one of his professions. Um, and when he'd been working in his shop, he might have had handkerchiefs he wiped his kind of brow with when he was sort of hot, and the apron he would have wore, wore, uh, worn for working. And some, obviously people nicked them and, went them and took them to sort of sick relatives who were then healed. Um, such was the, the presence of God on, Jesus, uh, on Paul, um, which is just amazing. I don't think that's a mandate that we should necessarily be just praying for handkerchiefs and taking them off, but God seemed to want to work in that way um, there, probably because of the culture of the city being quite spiritual um, and, and used to those kind of manifestations. That actually, Jesus wanted to demonstrate him as himself as more powerful than those, that actually, even without the person there, um, he could heal. Um, and it, we can see that it was all done in the name of Jesus. Paul obviously prayed in the name of Jesus, um, demonstrated miracles in the power of Jesus, and he made that very clear. Because then you get these Jewish exorcists who <laughs> try to copy, and they, I mean, it's, it's staggering in its stupidity, really, where they say, I, you know, I'm going to try and command a, a demon out of someone in the name of Jesus that someone else is preaching. And they, they're honest enough to admit that. I pray in the name of Jesus, who the other guy preaches, Paul, that you would come out of this person. And this, this individual beat seven of them up, so they were wounded and naked. So this guy, he was obviously super tough and super strong, you know, demonically influenced. He could take on seven guys and beat them witless, strip them naked, and then kick them out of the house. Um, okay, it's fine. All right, okay, you're just, you're just coming to watch, fine. Um, where was I? La, 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 la. Uh, they were naked. Yeah, let's come back in on that. Naked men running out. But the result of it was the name of God was honored even more. The name of Jesus, because people were like, my goodness, that the power in the name of Jesus was above anything that they had witnessed in the city. So kind of Jesus had come to town and they proclaimed his name and he was above all the powers uh, that they had been used to in that city. And as a re result, his name was honored. That was the key, that these demonstrations of power were shown. But at the end of it, it was Jesus 
its name. That was honour. And there was a kind of a reverent awe or fear, they say, that came upon the people for the name of Jesus because of the power his name demonstrated. And what this resulted in was repentance among the people. Repentance, uh, turning around from your old way of life and following Jesus. And repentance really is the essence of the Christian message. Um, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, um, when he nailed his thesis to the, um, the, the church door in Wittenberg that kick-started kind of a, a radical change in Christianity all across the world, the first lines of that um, document said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so actually repentance is something we do, we do when we become a Christian, but then we live our lives of repentance, turning away from habits, actions, attitudes that we know would dishonour God and turning towards him and embracing ones that he would have for us. And these people who had had the gospel proclaimed to them, even believers, it said, suddenly realised that some of their practices were not lining up with God's message and they were going to destroy some of the items they had in their home, magical books and spells and another kind of paraphernalia of this um, of you know the occult kind of uh, life and they decided to destroy them as an act of repentance of their heart saying I'm going to turn away I don't want to live that life among the terms of Jesus and they wanted to, to destroy it all and it said it was worth what 50,000 pieces of silver uh, from what I read in the commentators a, a, a piece of silver was one day's work was the payment for one day's work for a kind of a laborer so you're looking at 50,000 days work wages there that they destroyed um, in repentance um, of their old way of life. And uh, the, the, the Christian message, if it affects you, if it gets you, that it will be a transformation of your heart that will then affect your lifestyle. It won't be a set of rules you bring on yourself. Do not, do not, do not, do not. That then you try and live out and will inevitably fail. It's an attitude of your heart that then, because God's touched it, that then you want to live it out. And I remember my own experience um, when I became a Christian and subsequently throughout my life, there are times when God has highlighted things in my life. And I remember being at university, there were things that I, he actually asked me just to get rid of, just chuck in the bin, because they were not healthy for me in my lifestyle and uh, what I was doing and things that I, it's things I, were, I was feeding on that actually says you're not, they're unhealthy for you. And so I remember getting rid of things and putting them in, in the bin and it just outside our, the front of our house where we lived as students. And the point is that the supernatural is very much part of what was, was in the life of the church and Paul's ministry, but it led to repentance. It wasn't, ooh, ah, let's see miracles, isn't that exciting? It was actually a demonstration that led to a change of life and people coming to worship Jesus and repent of their old way of life and following him. And lastly, the result of all that, the preaching of God's word, the power of the spirit, the demonstration of the supernatural was that the church's presence was felt throughout the entire city. And the next section, a little bit of a longer section, but it's quite amazing when you you read it, it says, uh, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must go to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he, he himself stayed in Asia a while. So he was getting ready to go. But it's about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is, um, it was Christianity before it was called Christianity, for a man named uh, Demetrius, a uh, silversmith, who made shrines of Artemis, who was the goddess of the city, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made from hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, uh, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even, even, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of him, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Asiarchs were kind of government officials in Ephesus. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, but Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things could not be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have him, uh, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay. First of all, we've got a, a pagan there, a non-Christian, someone who doesn't follow God, saying that Paul, Paul's message has gone throughout the entire of Asia. So that's quite a testimony. That's not being bigged up by a Christian. That's someone outside it saying, do you know what? Paul's message has gone everywhere, and his motivation is purely financial. Our trade could be destroyed because everyone is kind of, Paul's proclaiming this message, people are becoming Christians and they're not going to worship at the temple and buy our shrines. And what the silversmith means is you would make a mini shrine of Artemis with, I think, a little gap in it that they, you would put an offering in and you would take that to the temple. And so you'd need one every day. And so there was a pretty good trade there from all the people who go to the temple, buy a little shrine and, and take it up. And so they were, on a, they were onto a good thing. And they realised actually people weren't doing that because they were becoming Christians and rejecting that. And they got the guild together, if you will, the trade union, and said, you know, we're about to go under financially because our trade is being eroded by this guy's preaching. Let's do something about it. So they cause a riot. They go into the theatre. I read somewhere that the theatre could hold about 20,000 people. And it, I think it says it filled it. So there was a lot of people there. And at one point, they were chanting for two hours straight. Okay, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Two hours straight. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I'd get bored after, you know, 30 seconds. But they kept chanting. They were obviously incensed. But the bit I kind of want to pull out is actually the presence of the church affected the city to the point it affected the economy. You know, the church was so present there. The word of God was so present. It was having such an effect that the actual, there was an impact on the economy of the city so much that it caused a riot. I mean, and riots are really quite current for us now. We're kind of so familiar with what they're like. Um, but actually, there was such a, an uproar that, that it affected the entire city. Such was the power of Paul's preaching um, and what he did. And if you look through church history, this is not unusual that God would affect a place so much 
by his presence through the preaching of, of um, godly men and women and people coming to faith and churches being established, that it would actually affect the culture of areas where they are. I read um, in the Welsh Revival in 1904, Evan Roberts preaching through the towns and villages in Wales, that actually there, 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 came, there were reports in, in certain towns that, that dance halls and pubs would literally have to close because no one was going there drinking vast amounts and getting hammered and doing all that. They were in the church worshipping and praying. And actually it had an effect on the, on the community. And some people might say that's not a good effect, but you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. That people were getting saved and the churches were full, the pubs were empty. And even up to date, I read this just you know, a few weeks back, there's a church in uh, Northern California in Reading called Bethel Church. Some of you may have heard of it. It's a place where God is moving in power, healing. But there's something called, they're calling it the Bethel Effect. And, and they're calling it that in secular newspapers. The local newspaper, I think it's called the Reading Mercury, I read a couple of articles in there, um, that, that this church is, is affecting the economy of the town. There are hotels and restaurants booming around where they meet because of the conferences they're holding. And people are flying all, from in all over the world to go to this church, to go to all these conferences, everyone, thousands and thousands of people, that, that, that restaurants are springing up, and they love the church. They love it's there. They say, keep running conferences, because they're all coming to eat our restaurant, and, and they're having a great effect. It's having a positive impact, so much that the paper is writing about them, and I think they've just moved to a new building, a new centre, and everyone's thrilled, because... <laughs> Because money is coming into the economy of the town, jobs are being provided, and it's good. And people are looking on the church with, you know, favour, because what it's doing, they're also bringing businesses in, because people are getting saved, wanting to go and join the church or be on uh, their, their ministry training school, that they're bringing businesses, are moving to the town, because Christians are in them and want to go to the church, and so it's kind of businesses are moving in and setting up shop there, so their, their workers can go to church on Sunday at this church, and it's just having this incredible effect. And I think this is, this is 2011. Does, this really, does God do this now? And he does. And my heart, if we kind of just wrap this up, my heart is that as we, as we study this book, I want us to be reminded again and again of who Jesus is and the fact that he is number one, and he should only be our number one uh, because he alone is worthy of our praise, but as we, we seek to build real life church, as we move forward, as, as God starts to do things, I want us to be a church that's based on the word of God and the power of the spirit, and that we never deviate from that. We will be preaching from the Bible every Sunday. We will be worshiping God in the spirit. We will pray for people in the power of the spirit. We will move in spiritual gifts. We will do all those things humbly before God. I want to see demonstrations of the supernatural. I'd love to um, pray for people if you are sick um, as we kind of get into our times of worship. <laughs> I know you've had an injury this week, Sharon, and we'd love, some, we'd love to pray for you. And if anyone else, for anything, we'd just like to pray for you, minister to you in the power of the Spirit. But the point of that is that our lives are then transformed. We don't do it for kicks or so we can tell wonderful stories or aren't we great, isn't God moving here? But actually that ultimately our hearts will be transformed and that we will love Jesus more and we will see more and more people come and know him. And ultimately, I'd love it that our church, among with all the other churches, we're not, we're not the answer, we're part of the answer, would as we grow and multiply and God blesses us, that we would affect the city. There would be a positive effect that the presence of the church here, that people would look on, governments and councillors and MPs would look on us and say, we are glad you are around. We are glad that you are serving the poor and the needy and the broken 
that you are you know, running conferences that people are coming into and providing the economy, that there are Christian businesses set up with godly men and women running them ethically and p- providing for workers and we create jobs and all those kind of things. I'd love us to be a church that influences all areas of society and, and actually that Birmingham becomes a place that people want to come to because Jesus is here. Um, and um, I'll, I said it last week, I'll say it again. The Lonely Planet recently published a guide to Britain and they didn't even mention Birmingham. Didn't, it didn't even get in. The UK, we're the second city. You know, Manchester, Liverpool got their own section. Birmingham didn't, apparently got no mention. And you think, really? Come on. And, and I'd love it to be mentioned in books like that because the churches there are pumping. And yeah, you go and get involved at things like that. So that's my heart. I'm going to finish now. Um, we're going to pray. Oh, homework. Homework. Sorry, got to give you some homework. Still a school teacher. Um, homework, I'd love you to take your Bible and start reading the book of Ephesians. You may never have read it, you may have read it at all. We're going to be studying it for months, and I'd love you just to get in the habit of reading it. It's only six chapters, you know, one a day, there's a week, and you can get a day off. Um, but it'd be good <laughs> just to get into it. So as we start looking forward, it you don't come on a Monday, uh, on a Sunday like, oh yeah, this book again. You know, you kind of, you actually, you're, you're familiar with it, and God's speaking to you through it. So it'd be great if you just start reading the book of Ephesians, and I think we're going to stop there.